Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and welcome to another episode of the Make Motherhood Diverse podcast. I am your host, Remy Sade, and I would like to welcome you all back because it's been a while. You know, we've been busy over at Make Motherhood Diverse doing lots and lots of different things. And although this week we featured a lot on mental health, actually, I'd like to bring your attention to something else really quickly before we jump into a conversation with our guest, who is a lady called Abby, and we are talking to her about her experiences living with disassociative attack disorder. So, obviously, some of you might not know. Um, I hope some of you do know, though. I am a writer and a podcaster by trade. That's what I do. Um, But I also am very passionate about many different things. And the founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, Candice Brathwaite, and I, this week, were on BBC Women's Hour. And we were specifically talking about the results and findings of the 2018 Embrace UK report, which is a mothers and babies reducing risk through audits and confidential inquiries across the UK body. Uh, What they did was they looked at all of the deaths, maternal deaths, deaths in childbirth specifically, for 2014 up until 2016 and they released their findings in a report in November 2018. Unfortunately, one of the harrowing findings of that report were that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women and that Asian women are two times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Uh, So we went to BBC Women's Hour and we had a conversation about it We sat down with a lot of different people, including a historian, um, somebody who is a consultant obstetrician and was speaking for the Royal College of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Um, Also, there was um, a midwife who had been working under the NHS for over 30 years and had also talked about her experiences working. Off of the back of that, of course, many people are outraged, as they should be. However, Candice and I felt like more needed to be done. And so we have decided to essentially start a campaign that will make somebody in power um, sit up, look up and also change whatever needs to be changed, whether that be the healthcare framework that is used or whether that be laws and legislation so that black women are no longer dying and Asian women are no longer dying at astronomical rates in comparison to white women merely because of the colour of their skin. If you'd like to listen to that BBC Women's Hour episode, which I suggest you do, um, then you can find it on their podcast. You can go to BBC Sounds, you can go to Spotify and you could also go to Apple Music and any other major platform. Just search BBC Women's Hour Um, And then if you type in or you look for um, the episode, it is called Black Women Are Five Times More Likely to Die in Childbirth Than White Women. Why? Um, it's, it's It's a hard episode to listen to. It was a hard episode to record, um, but I think it's incredibly necessary. We also have a petition that we are um, hoping picks up a lot of traction. Um, it's a completely a team effort. No one person can take credit for um, 
the way that things are going because we don't know what we're doing. We're just trying to save lives essentially. So every little helps and because it is a team effort, um, if you guys could go to the petition.parliament.uk website and look for a petition which is called Improve Maternal Care for Black British Women, then um, you'll see it and please sign it. We're at 19,000 signatures and it's been two days. We're hoping to get it to 100,000 signatures because at that point the government will have to respond um, and it will be considered for debate in Parliament. I hope you not only enjoy this episode but I also hope that you uh, you learn something from it. Um, maternal mental health is a big conversation and there are many different areas that you can cover. For MMD this week we've chosen to cover um, mothers who experience varying degrees of mental health conditions, illnesses and, um, and issues because postnatal depression is a conversation that is very important. However, Outside of that, there aren't many other conditions and many other experiences of living with mental health as parents that are given as much um, opportunity to be spoken about. So today we are sitting down with Abby and we are talking about your experiences as a ma, but also as somebody who lived with disassociative attack disorder pre and postnatally. So like obviously not pre not prenatally in terms of pregnancy, but it's an existing condition. Mm-hmm. Do you call it a condition? Are you yeah. comfortable with that term? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so an existing condition that you've had since you were how old? I think the first time was like when I was 12. But okay. I wasn't formally diagnosed till I was about 16 or 17. So in that five-year period, is there a reason that you weren't diagnosed? Like, did you share it with people? Yeah, so it was happening at school, at home, but it's a long process to be diagnosed formally because it, it presents itself in strange ways. It also, there wasn't much research at the time. So when I ended up being referred to the leading consultant in that field, because he was the first person to publish anything about it. um, And yeah, it was just that no one knew what it was. So so that was my next question. What is disassociative attack disorder? Because I'm guessing quite a few people wouldn't know um, what it is or may not have even heard of it. Yeah. So is, I guess it comes under the bracket of like an anxiety disorder um, and presents itself in a way that epilepsy would. So sometimes they call it non-epileptic attack disorder. Um, but it can kind of come about in different ways for different people. For me, I will experience sort of the things that people might get before a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Um, so I sort of know it's coming um, and slowly it feels like I dissociate from the situation and what I describe it as kind of getting lost within myself and I will firstly begin to twitch and then it will become full-blown convulsions so as you fall and then there are convulsions it can last between 15 minutes to two hours um, of continuous convulsions or sort of sporadic moments of them Um, I'll lose my speech entirely Um, and it will come out sort of gibberish and then there's a process of sort of coming round again during it I can hear everything and I can sort of understand what's going on um, but I can't physically respond to people or my environment so you do you feel mentally lucid but verbally you can't communicate that kind of sort of it feels like I'm trapped within something 
So there's mm-hmm. quite an overwhelming fear always. I know that I'm safe and I know I'm not dying, but there's a, yeah, you're lost somewhere inside and everything else is happening outside of you. And you mentioned before that it's um, it's something that feels like, initially it feels like something that people experience before having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. But when I say what is um, disassociative attack disorder, in terms of the mental part, because you've spoken about the physical experience mm-hmm. of it, is it um, an experience that is triggered by mental... Um, thoughts so is it like Mm -hmm. is it triggered or is it your feelings associated with physical experiences does that make sense kind of so it's defined as a psychogenic um condition Mm -hmm. so it's not strictly just psychological Mm -hmm. but it's not neurological Mm -hmm. um so i was tested a lot for like neurological conditions um and i think they see when i know that i've had um monitoring and they see there are spikes but like it's not your brain doing it it's somewhere between the two um so it's more of a physiological condition um but so yeah i mean i sort of say that it's sort of management of my emotions that like when things are just like building up then it kind of releases itself but i know that periods of time that have been extreme stress when i've been sort of in educational settings where i've been under a lot of pressure then that exam season kind of I mean mm. I've never been in that sort of education <laughs> but but yeah um that that's they're usually heightened at that time they'll happen more regularly um so it's hard to put my finger on exactly on what the triggers are because sometimes mm-hmm. it will be nothing at all it's almost I wake up that morning I'm like I don't know I don't feel good and I think it's going to come uh, or other moments it'll be I've had like sort of tensions with friends I know when I was younger that if there was a conflict between a person that would often be a trigger. Okay. I've always had quite extreme situations where I feel I'm in a, an environment that feels unsafe to me. And the only way to control that environment is my body sort of to begin to dissociate. And then, you know, that's mm-hmm. what comes next. So I can't put my finger exactly on what those triggers are. Yes, to some extent they're emotional, to some extent they're psychological. It's both the thoughts and feelings thing. Um, have you ever been worried that you're, like like you said, you've woken up and you've not felt good, mm-hmm. worried that you're going to um, have a convulsion that day and then actually you don't? So the, have you ever had, like, the fear is there, but you haven't um, experienced the full extent of the disassociation? And equally, have you ever kind of not been caught off guard, but have you not expected or not felt like it building and then it happens and you're a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah, definitely to both. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll wake up and I'll feel like, okay, I'm not feeling good today, like things are not good. And it might be that I get to a point where I feel like it's almost there, I'm just feeling like very, very anxious or or twitchy and odd and just not good, but that it won't follow through to a full-blown seizure. And it leaves me feeling like not complete like it just hasn't it's it's almost cathartic to experience it because it releases all of that tension i was about to ask you do you find it to be a release yeah and almost like when you don't have the full uh i don't know what the right word is when you don't have the full convulsion and disassociation then it's like something's not finished exactly yeah Mm. so some 
I mean, obviously there's situations as a mum that, yes, if I can implement childcare and I know that I've got an environment where I can just release it or whatever, it's fine. If I don't have that, then I have to hold on to that and I have to use self-regulation and monitor myself very carefully to make sure that it doesn't happen. And I'm lucky that I've had a lot of CBT that has given me that tool. And, but it's not, it's okay short-term, but long-term, I know that in two weeks it will happen or in three weeks it will happen. It will always come out. And it's a weird feeling that it, that, that's where you just have to accept, accept that I'm living with that. So because, because of, I mean, we're going to talk about your pregnancy in a minute, but because of the fact that you have had CBT and because of the fact that it is a physiological condition, does that mean that you're able to control it somewhat if, if you don't have childcare or you, or you essentially need to not have a full blown disassociation? Mm -hmm. Do you, do you feel like you can control it or is it something that you can kind of like keep at bay because like you said, it will eventually come out? Yeah. I think that, yeah, sometimes it's, I can do that. Sometimes I just sort of hold on to it as best I can and, yeah, use the techniques that I have to keep myself here and present and, yeah. Um, but, yes, also to sometimes it just, it snaps. But I would say that I haven't found myself for it to happen like that, that kind of where did that come from, didn't see it coming, unless I've been in a safe environment. Mm. I've never experienced it where I've been truly vulnerable in the sense that I've been out and about with my son and haven't had a safe, a safety net around me. Um, so I think there is something subconsciously that keeps me, it's almost like I need that environment for my body to go, okay, this is safe and this can happen. Mm -hmm. And I feel so lucky that it's that. Obviously with neurological like seizures, you, you don't have that choice. It just comes and it will happen regardless of circumstance. So yes, yeah, sometimes it can feel like it will just come on suddenly, but it hasn't yet. And I hope it never does. How did you um, feel when you found out you were pregnant knowing that, you, because you found out you're pregnant after you'd been diagnosed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you feel finding out that you're pregnant and knowing that you were living with this condition as well? It just wasn't a threat. I just had complete faith that it would be okay. My friends were concerned. Um, my therapist wasn't, my consultant wasn't. They just felt, they sort of said, yes, there's a threat somewhat. Yes, it's not going to be as easy to manage. But I think the condition is one that you, I mean, because I was already um, having CBT, I, already, I was already implementing those ways to kind of regulate things, but yeah, it just, it, I just had faith it was going to be okay. And I just thought, okay, well, that's a condition, but I'm living with it now and I'm going to be okay now. So I'll be okay then. Um, and I knew that I had a support, a good enough support system around me that whatever kind of my mental health threw at me, I'd be able to reach out to people. Did you have a specified care plan from the maternal services around you because you had um, disassociative active disorder. No. Sorry, attack disorder. Yeah, <laughs> no. Um, they, I think, so I was under the care of um, the Maudsley, which is in South London, and they, uh, it's, you know, really recognised mental health hospital. Yeah. So because I had ongoing outpatient care there, they were like, oh, great. Like, we don't really need to do anything for you then. 
Like, you've got someone watching over you. But the Maudsley were caring for you as a mental health patient, not as a mother or mother-to-be. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So I had ongoing therapy around before and after my pregnancy. So I think they considered, well, you're already, like, cared for in that sense. Um, It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing until the day I was giving birth. How did you feel about that? Like during your pregnancy, would you have wanted to have separate care? I think the experiences I'd had within the NHS outside of my care at the Maudsley was so negative in regards to that condition that that was fine. I was like, okay, I'd rather be looked after by people who know exactly what this is Mm -hmm. than to try to be looked after by maternal mental health nurses that maybe wouldn't have a comprehensive understanding of that condition. Do you feel like it's a very specific condition to be cared for? Like you need somebody who knows your condition more so than an understanding of general mental health? I think to some extent, yes. Like not necessarily like specific to me personally, but maybe just an understanding of the condition and that it can present itself in different ways. And it can present itself in different ways for the same person at different times. Okay. Um, yeah, just because otherwise it can just sort of get put under a bracket of something that it's not. What do people, um, assume or misdiagnose your condition as sometimes? So in terms of emergency care, I have always been seen, okay, so this is someone who's presenting themselves as having an epileptic seizure and they will, um, test things. There are certain tests you do in that situation, um, the most intrusive of which I find is like the gag reflex thing. So that it, they're not supposed to, and I've only learned this more recently, but I experienced a lot in terms of um, ambulance technicians. We don't call them paramedics because it's a different job. Um, will sometimes put things down your throat. See if you gag, there's also certain points on your body, like they're pressing onto your nail to see your pain reflexes. And they're basically checking, checking your reflexes. And I will have reflexes and it can be very uncomfortable. And obviously when you're already experiencing that, it's... And this is why you're currently actively having a convulsion. Exactly, yeah. Um, I've also had experiences where they've tried to administer sedatives. So I've had needles trying to go in, but I'm convulsing. And also I'm having reflexes, like, please don't put anything in me. Um, I don't want it. Um, and then I've had like track marks all over my arms, bruises up and down my legs because they're either trying to restrain me so that they can get needles in or yeah, whatever. So it's because they're seeing it as, is this epilepsy? No, it's not epilepsy, but why is it presenting itself like it is? I've also had situations where people have been their peers whom I thought were friends or maybe still are, I'm not even sure, who would say, oh yeah, she told me she had epilepsy, but clearly she's faking it. Or, I've heard she fakes epilepsy, so this is what this is. And I've had these ambulance technicians say, yeah, I can see what you're doing, and you're just faking it. Or, I've, had, I've been under the influence of alcohol, or what they think is under the influence of drugs. And then it's obviously, they're seeing it in a completely different way. It's like, this is an effect of alcohol or drugs, so we've got to deal with this in a different way. And it's, I now have... Um, a medic alert card in my purse so that when it does present itself in in sort of a public environment that usually and hopefully they'll find it as with my medical ID on my phone um, now that's read and they know what it is 
But I can tell you for a fact, 10, 15 years ago, no one knew what that was. Mm. I've had people read that and go, well, yeah, but what is that? So the medical alert card is quite detailed. It will break down what it is and how to deal with it. Um, so that's good. Mm. But obviously pre-diagnosis, I didn't have that. Yeah. So I had nothing to put that on. So I can't even remember your question now. But <laughs> I mean, that shows you that it's a certain degree of trauma no, I, that's I, I come with it. I was just asking you how um, people misdiagnosed you, basically. Right, um, yeah, yeah. And you said that, you said that it wasn't a thing, or your condition wasn't a thing until the day you were given birth in terms of pregnancy. Right. How did it change, or what became a thing okay. when you were, I'm guessing, in labour? Or Kind of. Yeah, okay. So, um, so, a way to regulate it happening is obviously to have a calm environment so if i'm feeling anxious or something's becoming difficult being in a calm environment will help things steady hopefully um so i went into sort of like i went into the labor on the saturday or you know early labor or whatever on the saturday night didn't give birth till the thursday evening um so there was a lot of back and forth there was sort of like going in and testing and la 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 and in that time, and leading up to that, I'd been low risk. Um, I was 22 when I was giving birth, and in terms of medical history, bar the mental health stuff, everything was fine. I'd had a, a couple of bleeds during the pregnancy, but they weren't enough that they deemed it a high risk at all, because they never really found out why they were happening, and I was always monitored during and after. Um, so the, the days leading up to the actual birth, I wanted to go to the birthing centre and possibly even have a water birth because I felt for me that was going to be the best thing. And up until that point, that had always been a possibility. There was no point in which they said it couldn't. Um, until these days, le days leading up to it, that someone, I guess someone just flagged up the mental health thing. They were like, okay, so you have this condition. So if you've got epilepsy, you can't go to the birthing centre. And I was like, oh no. It's not epilepsy. And it was probably written down in my notes at some point as non-epileptic attack disorder. So as soon as you see that word, epileptic, they assume, oh, it's something related to that. Therefore, this is high risk. You should not be here. But obviously, at no point, despite that being on my notes from day one, at no point was that said that I couldn't be in a birthing centre. So obviously, this also brought in a new level of stress during those days because I thought, well, I just want... A calm environment and going onto the labor ward though they think that I'm safer there the only reason you're saying I'm safer there is because of the my mental health condition but I know that the best thing for that condition is being a calmer environment so I reached out to my consultant and the mortally and I said look this is what's happening they're basically saying I can't go to the bed and set up can you please write something reach out to them ASAP um, because I literally am having contractions now um, and I don't know how quickly this next bit's going to go um, but I, I just think that the best thing for me is to be in the birthing centre do you agree do you think I'm high risk do you think that my condition is a threat to the safety of my child or me during labour he agreed no it's not I know this condition I know how it presents itself in you as long as you're regulating the environment should anything else medically happen then of course yes you should go to the labour ward otherwise it's safe. Um, he was amazing. I think he read that that email in the evening and had a letter out to them 
like within that night. Um, and they basically overrode it and they said, no, we're not doing it. The risk is too high. You need to stay on the labour ward. Who, who um, decided that? Honestly, I don't and know. How? Yeah, I guess just the maternity ward at the hospital that was at. Were you um, not consulted about that? Not really. It was just sort of like, no, the birthing centre just said, no, we don't feel safe. We don't feel okay with it. You might, but what do we do if you started having a seizure? How do we deal with it? Obviously, I walked them through it. I said, this is what you need to do. Also, my mum was going to be there with me. She obviously knows how it would present itself and would then say, okay, we need to deal with this in a different way. I said, well, you have to trust me. I'm not going to be convulsing as I'm giving birth. Like, there's not a way that psychologically or physiologically, I believe or know that I can be pushing a baby out of me and that happening at the same time. It just isn't going to happen. It, it's the moments beforehand that are going to be the way I can control this. I've had CBT. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you're you know. living with this and have done for exactly. a large proportion of your life. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, overnight it was like, no, sorry, regardless of your consultant saying that you'll be safe and fine, you're going to the labour ward. How did being on the labour ward affect you? And did do you think it affected your mental health in any way, like after giving birth and reflecting on that experience? I think that I was so lost in the birth and I was so... That labour was just dragging itself out that I just got I was just in that environment you know it didn't really even bother me I think the only moments were um in terms of pain relief I was using gas and air and my the way I was affected by gas and air was quite extreme and the um yeah they sort of just they said oh this is quite unusual um because the midwife who was in the room with me was just like, I've never seen anyone kind of get as as affected by it. And, you know, just in the normal way you go, that cuckoo, I guess. <laughs> That's a weird way of putting it. But, yeah, I was just chatting crazies. I just don't know what I'm saying. And my sister was like, what is wrong with you? Um, and they sort of asked, I can't, I can't remember specifically what pain relief they were offering me, but I th think I was, they were saying, right, okay, this could affect your uh, perception of sort of um the pain but it might make you feel a bit high like not great in your head and things might not feel so real mm -hmm. the second they said that i was like look i've got a condition where that can happen anyway i do not want to feel not in control i'd rather go through the pain and manage the pain than you tell me that i've taken a drug that could make me not feel so here because even with the gas and air i'm feeling pretty out of it so those were the only moments where I had to say, okay, knowing me, knowing my condition, these are things that are not going to work for me. Um, but I think that was the only moment within labour that I even thought about it because I think the rest of the time, yeah, you're, you just, feel like you you're just to... managing getting a baby out. So <laughs> Do you feel like didn't... you had to advocate for yourself quite a lot during labour? Or not quite a lot, but in, in those moments where those conversations are happening and obviously when you were having the conversation about where you were going to give birth as well. I think I just felt like I had no power. Mm. Because, I mean, I felt like, okay, well, I'll reach out to a professional in this field who mm -hmm. is my consultant, who knows me personally, and have that backed up by my therapist. And still, well, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough for us. So there was nothing more I could say. And this was happening. Yes, it was early labour. Yes, I was not fully dilated, but I was still having contractions and I still knew this baby was coming. So ultimately, I was like, well, okay, but I just need to get it out. So 
I don't have the time or capacity to negotiate here. Um, I've just got to go with what they want to do. How do you think that for other women with your condition and for you, how do you think it could have gone better or um, what care could have been provided to you before going into labour? Because that, having that conversation in that moment must have yeah. been quite stressful in itself. Yeah. Um, I think that they definitely could have addressed it weeks earlier and it definitely could have been clearer on my notes. Um, because had I known, let's say they bumped me up to high risk, which meant I couldn't go to the Berlin Centre at all, and they justified that by because of this condition, at least I could prepare myself for that. At least I know that when I have the image, that whole your hospital plan thing, uh, your birthing plan is this, this and this, like, at least I kind of, I would have known. But I didn't know everything I preempted to happen. And I think we all know that labour could go one way or the other. You can't really predict it. They say, like, pack this, but you might need this, you know? Like, mm. yeah, of course. But it's kind of good to have some stability on what it might look like. But what I thought it might look like, it didn't look like at all. And effectively, they knew that all along. It's just that it wasn't addressed until it came to the point that you're literally talking to people about giving birth in this moment. All of kind of the care before then is just about how your pregnancy is, right? So if they're like, okay, you're good in your pregnancy, you've got a therapist, you've got a consultant, you're managing your pregnancy and your seizures, that's fine. You're managing your pregnancy and your mental health, you're okay, safe enough. But when it came to the actual birth, that wasn't really a conversation that was had mm. um, until it was happening. So yes, it just needs to be addressed sooner. And I think, yeah, it maybe wasn't about having particular mental health care from them, but it's about going, okay, we recognise this condition, how is that going to affect, affect you in birth, in labour? How is this going to affect us as caregivers and how is it going to affect you as a woman giving birth? Yeah. But it just wasn't a conversation that was had. And obviously then you had your son mm -hmm. and everything was okay with him and sure. with you yeah. afterwards. Did you receive any care after giving birth? Did anyone such as health visitors or your consultant, I don't know if there is a process of caregiving after mm -hmm. someone with a mental health condition has had a child, but like a pre-existing mental health condition. Yeah, um, obviously I was always flagged up for postnatal depression and the health visitors knew that. And I think on the maternity ward after I'd given birth, I was also one of those like young mum things and I remember them coming in and be like, wow, you're doing remarkably well for so young. And there was a whole breastfeeding thing. They'd be like, wow, you're doing so well. You're really coping with this. I was also a single young mum who the first night after giving birth, I was alone. And it was terrifying. And I did that thing where I broke down because there was a baby in my arms who I didn't, who just relentlessly screamed and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, obviously they were, they were brilliant and there was really good care there. And I'm lucky because I don't think it did knock my mental health in those moments, but there is absolutely no doubt that it could have. So then I went home after a couple of days, obviously had the normal scheduled health visitor visits. And I think there was, you know, fleeting conversations about how are you, how are you feeling? And I think because also I'd, I'd previous to that, like experienced so many severe lows and confusing times with my mental health. But to me, even if I, I was feeling overwhelmed or under pressure, or anxious about my environment or the 
the situation that I was in as a new parent, that was only a fraction of things I'd felt previously. So of course, in my eyes, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, things are good. Like, yeah, I know I'm crying every five minutes, but I'm a new mum, so that's normal, right? And like, I'm getting out of bed and like, I'm exhausted, but I'm just tired, so that's normal. So the questions were asked, but, and I think genuinely, I was answering them honestly, and I didn't feel under any threat of PND. I felt fine. In terms of my existing consultant and my existing therapist, I, I don't know when I even saw them after then. I think that I would have only seen them at like a regularly, like a, the next scheduled appointment. And obviously there was a new conversation because I had yeah. a baby now, <laughs> but it, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything else that kind of came in as a question. It was just, you know, okay, cool, you're doing fine. I don't, yeah, I don't remember anything that was extra, you know? No. Did you create a plan um, after you became a mum about mm -hmm. what you would do if you thought that you were going to have convulsion or if you just weren't feeling great? Mm -hmm. Or did you talk to your support system mm -hmm. about how we're going to manage this? Because it is an existing condition. It's something that you've lived with and you will always live with. Yeah. Did you think about, okay, raising my child, how does this work? So when I was pregnant, I was living in London with a friend and the, I knew I wasn't um, going to be in a relationship with the father of my child. So um, at least for the first few months, I knew I was going to move home back with my parents. Um, the decision was based mostly on um, just the need for someone because I figured I had a newborn baby. And then uh, the next step for me at that time was going to be to move out within the next few months after I'd had that initial support and, you know, whatever. So in those early days, I knew that I lived in a home where there were other people who both worked full time, but should I need them, could be there. Um, so I had that support system in my home with me. So if I was feeling like it was an overwhelming day or anything else, um, I could pick up the phone or I could say to them, you know, first thing in the morning, like, I'm not feeling good today. And at least there's someone checking in. Like, okay, cool. We know what the situation is. Um, but again, I felt like a lot of it was about having a newborn. You know, those just really hard days to me didn't feel related to my mental health. They felt related to being a new mother on my own. Um, but yeah, quickly those things kind of run into each other. When did you, when did you, shift from thinking it was just about being a new parent to it being about you and your condition as well as the the new um ex the new stage in your life of mm -hmm. parenthood too i don't think i had any of aware any awareness of it at the time in hindsight i look back and i'm like oh well that wasn't that that was that mm. but i had so i was a new mother i had existing mental health conditions um and I was used to having highs and lows. I was used to having these seizures that are related to my mental health. And I had added pressures and difficulties on, in terms of relationships at that time. So I was experiencing a lot of gaslighting and a lot of difficult turmoil, which was gonna have an effect on my mental health as well. Mm -hmm. And 
they all sort of just ran into one. So I couldn't have said, oh, it's this thing that's affecting me in this way. And I sort of always say about myself and to others that it's overlooked sometimes that mental health is, um, those fluctuations in mental health are chemical. I know that my mental health is just affected by chemistry because um, there have been times when I've taken medication and things have regulated. And I just know it's, you know, half the time it's just serotonin levels. So there are dips and there are highs. Yes, you're affected by your feelings and emotions too, but I could always justify a low by a chemical imbalance. So at the time, I think I had no awareness of it. It was just bad days and better days. Um, in hindsight, I can kind of look at what those triggers may have been. Do you um, currently have um, steps in place to regulate yourself or consistently? Yeah, I think that, so I had two full courses of CBT, which have meant, which have, which have like changed me exponentially. I just see the whole world in an entirely different way. Sort of my thought process is completely different. Um, I sort of would encourage anyone to do it because I think that it just like makes us all function slightly better. Um, so my understanding and my rationalising of my thoughts is much better than it was 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's the normal things, you know, right now I'm not, I'm not medicated at all and that's working right now. But I also know that, you know, quite recently I had, I experienced some grief in my life, which I think knocked me in a different way, which meant that um, I needed to sort of, yeah, censor how am I feeling? How am I doing? This might have affected things. And things weren't so great in those moments. And it really, it was an unusual time because it wasn't a low in the way that I knew a low. That some of the things that are associated with disassociation are derealization and depersonalization. So it's the feelings of the environment around you not feeling real or like you're really in it, that sort of feeling of being in a movie, like a bit Truman Show, um, or looking in the mirror and just not recognizing yourself. Like, I don't know who that person is, I never have. And I was having feelings like that and I sort of just had to go, okay, things aren't actually good right now. Um, and I need to watch this. So quickly I said, okay, I'm gonna call up um, and get an appointment with my consultant immediately because I have to implement these things immediately before anything gets worse or dangerous. And unfortunately found out at that time that my consultant within the six months that I've not seen him has retired, no one told me, but it's an incredibly um, understaffed field and mm. that hospital is in great demand. There's I think an eight month waiting list at the moment. So will you not be able to see anybody? Um, yeah, I'm on a waiting list. They said they might be able to bump it because I'm an existing um, outpatient, but they just don't know. But they don't even have a consultant in that department at the moment. Wow. So that was difficult. Um, so I'm lucky that at that point, my parents kind of stepped in and also said, okay, well, if we need private professional help on a short, so maybe a one-off appointment, we can do that. Like in terms of money, I had a support system set. We can pay for that at least if you need something immediately and I started implementing all those things and then I said okay I think I need to go back onto medication I always have it um because I've just had it for so long it's always in my cupboard and likewise if I called up my GP they'll be like cool we'll get it to you straight away went straight back onto medication but 
then in those coming days after realizing and just saying to myself, okay, this is how things are, these are the things I need to do, I think I just self-regulated. I think I just managed to kind of take those steps and I managed to say, okay, what's going on here? How am I feeling? In a way I never would have ever been able to do previously. How do you think that your condition affects your motherhood? Or do you think that it affects your motherhood at all? Yeah, I think, well, definitely does. But I think that um, in terms of like sort of the lows, the depression, the kind of anxiety, I would have dropped into those things and sat in them and let myself kind of fester in that space for I'm not sure how long, you know, it could have gone on for days or weeks. It could have been low for months and just there would be better days and worse days. But now I sort of find myself dropping into it, recognising what's happening. And then there's a really big incentive to be doing something. There's a reason I have to get up every morning, even if it's really hard and I don't know how I'm doing it. I'm going to get someone dressed and fed and out the house or in a safe environment in my home. If it means that we have to have a day where there are just films on and I can't participate in the way I want to as a mum, then that's just the way it'll have to be for that day. Um, but not being a mother, there's no reason to get up. There's no reason to even look after yourself. There's no reason to eat well or medicate yourself. And at the worst of times, there's no reason to be here. Um, so it's a far more threatening and dangerous space to be in when you're alone. And I say alone as in pre-motherhood. Just because, yeah, you have less of a incentive. Is that how you feel about it in general, or just like your personal experience with it? I think that's my personal experience. I don't think I could talk for anyone else because mm. I think that those really dark moments can be really, really dark. And you'll doubt yourself as a, a mother as much as you doubt yourself as a human. So I can completely understand how even as a mother, even when I would never turn around and say, I can't, I don't know how she does that. She's a mum, why is she not getting out of bed, you know? Mm. Oh, there's good reason and your brain is unbelievably powerful and it will control the darkest of thoughts and tell you terrible terrible things so I'm lucky that it that I have enough control that I can rationalize it but again I would take that back to the CBT because I can rationalize those thoughts and feelings in a way that I wouldn't have been able to previously pre-therapy um, and yet obviously also I have moments where I doubt sort of my value as a mum. I'm sort of there and I'm letting my parents pick up the pieces and helping him get to school as I lie there in bed and think, but I'm useless, like he doesn't need me. And they remind me like, no, this is how you feel right now and he does. And you might not be able to give yourself 110% right now, but at least giving yourself to 20% is more than not being here at all. Um, and I know now that it's not forever it's just for a few days and I will come out of it. So yeah, I can only talk for myself. I don't know how other people feel in those moments, but I can see how it, you know, cannot be that. For people who have never had any knowledge of your condition before this conversation, what would you want them to take away from it? I guess it sounds strange, like living with mental health conditions I think there's this thing that it's like that you're always struggling like 
oh, you struggle with that condition. I often tell people like, I've never had to struggle with mental health. And I just find sometimes that word is thrown around because yes, sometimes you struggle. Sometimes you're dragging yourself along the floor to get through that day. But there are other days where you're as functioning, as highly functioning as anyone else in the world who's not ever experienced any mental health conditions. So you don't need to be covered in bubble wrap all the time. Yes, you need a support system, but everyone does because no one knows that tomorrow they're not going to drop into something like no i think it's just i feel like if everything could be seen in the same way that anyone can get ill at any moment anyone can turn a corner and they're approached by the threat of cancer anyone can turn a corner and they're like threatened by mental health conditions and you don't know the way they're going to like show themselves in your life you might not and I pray that you never do, but that's the reality of it. And I don't think that it's fair to look at people like, oh, they always need that bubble wrap. And I know that I've been given that bubble wrap in moments that it's not allowed me to push those boundaries in my life because it's kept me safe. And it's kind of said, it's best that you keep yourself in that safe environment. It's best that you don't push yourself too much. But like, I have dreams and aspirations and I deserve to kind of bang on those walls and break down those boundaries. Um, yes, have a support system. Yes, know that there is possibly more of a threat, but allow yourself to live as kind of vicariously as anyone else does. And don't be threatened enough that it silences you in any way. Wow, I have no more questions. <laughs> Thank you for talking to me That's about okay, this. Thank I you. very much appreciate it. Over on www.makemotherhooddiverse.com, which is our website, we also have a lady called Leonora who spoke about her experience of living with borderline personality disorder. Um, the piece is called Mothering and Borderline Personality Disorder. It's also in the link in our bio on our Instagram page, which is at makemotherhooddiverse on Instagram. Um, she's spoken about how borderline personality disorder affects her, what it looks like in her life, how it affects her motherhood, and what she does to be aware of how it could affect her and her child's relationship. Um, it was written so openly and so honestly, um, and I think it could provide a lot of insight and perspective and understanding for people who don't necessarily understand what BPD is, but also for people who are living with it as well. Um, so definitely please check that out. Usually, I end the episode of the podcast with a piece that has already been published on the MMD Instagram page. Today, because of the current conversation that is happening surrounding birth, I'm actually going to read you something that I wrote the day after I recorded the BBC Woman's Hour episode with Candice, um, and I hope that you listen to this and it gives you a little bit more of a reason to do your research and to understand what's going on and to take some action with us because please this is a community and we need all of your help if you'd like to find me i am at remy Chardet on instagram i was around the five or six month mark here i'd already been told by a consultant midwife that black women find it harder to labour than most 
because our spines curve different. Yesterday, I went back to BBC Women's Hour to talk about the birth rate, mortality rate amongst black women. Black women have a 20% chance at survival in birth compared to white women. Asian women have a 50% survival rate compared to white women. I was told by a currently practicing obstetrician that in fact it is true and the NHS are aware that different ethnic groups have variations of pelvic shapes but currently we are given the same framework for labour. So I came home and read that Embrace report for myself all a hundred odd pages. Do you know what else it said? It said that although they know we're more likely to die as BAME women, they don't know why. There's been no study about that yet. That same obstetrician suggested that socioeconomics influence the birth mortality rate, as well as the NHS being overrun. 81% of women across all races who died in childbirth did so in hospital. The study also said that of those, just under 40% of all deaths in childbirth may have had a different outcome if improvements to care were made. I was one of those women who nearly died in childbirth and Sana was one of those babies who nearly died in childbirth. I've had people tell me all sorts of theories about why they think it happened. I've consistently been grateful for the fact we didn't die and our lives were saved. After reading that study, and hearing a leading obstetrician and gynaecologist doctor admit and suggest that factors such as being healthy prior to pregnancy may help result in a higher survival rate amongst BAME women have left me reeling. The Embrace study looked at factors such as age, weight, socioeconomics, smoking status of all races, but we still die the most and they just don't know why. The episode has aired I'm proud to be a part of that conversation. I just wish that we didn't have to have it.